0: This is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before.
1: Welcome to the Andy Wakefield podcast. I think this is episode 22. (laughs) Andy Wakefield has made a remarkable film, and uh, perhaps, Andy, we should get a quick update on where we are with the film because our audience want to know.
0: The film, what can I say about the film? The film is very, very close to being finished. DeWolf and I, Claire Dooley, one of my editors, and I have been working here. We have just finalized our contribution to the movie. It is now going to be colored and uh, sound uh, mixed. Uh, That's being done. we're, We're finishing this film... Virtually, which is is, must be a first, I think, or at least amongst the first to ever go through this process. And I, I, enormous credit to a new system that's been made available to us called Frame.
1: It's worked very nicely for you, hasn't it?
0: Fantastic. It is a, it's been a joy. We could not have done this without Frame. Frame is a, a system for online film editing, which is. One of the great benefits is the rapid upload. Uh, it used to be we had to wait a long, long time for big files to upload. This is very, very quick and you can add the It's The functionality is superb. So all kudos to those who designed the frame system. It's been life-saving for our film. So we, virtually done. Um, our music is coming from Jeff Weitzman in California. That's one of the last things that goes in. And then we are ready to go. So it's been an extraordinary experience, that almost biblical in the constraints that have been placed on this film, the hazards, the roadblocks that have been put in the way, not least of which is COVID-19. And then my editor went to work in Mississippi, where her family live, during the worst of of the lockdown. And she was struck by tornadoes, so there was a power outage, Oh, <laughs> we needed was a plague of frogs and and we were pretty struggling. Anyway, we've come through it all. It was meant to be and it will be very, very soon. So it could not come at a more important time in American history, indeed world history. It's extraordinary how the events of the film mirror, anticipate mirror and provide an insight into the current dilemma that man faces with not just the infectious agent, COVID, but with the response, with the commercial imperatives that have been generated by this, by the dogma, by the lies, by the corruption, by the distortion of facts, by the use of fear to market the product. And it is it, it is an extraordinary insight. And I hope, I hope that Americans, the world will take this opportunity to study this and realize where it has been, where it is now, and therefore where it is likely to be going, depending on the decisions that are taken.
1: Yet we are running out of descriptors, aren't we? The adjectives We're,
0: are... Jim and I just agreed that we have no more superlatives left.
1: I think it's also quite extraordinary to overuse a superlative, that one of the trending hashtags on social media right now is Make Orwell Fiction Again, and yet the title of your film is 1984, with a four scratched out to 1986, the act. I don't think the table could be set any more appropriately for you in this film. Would you agree?
0: I have a copy of the book right in front of me. I'm reading it again. it It was so prescient, it was it was terrifying at the time, and it remains terrifying now, and people really need to read it after they've seen the film, before they've seen the film and and realize how I mean how extraordinary insightful George Orwell was, and how there is no overstatement in everything that he did and says. And particularly in light of the, the comments that appear to have come out of Washington.
1: Which ones in particular? It's an hourly narrative at this point. I think it could almost be broken down into 15-minute chunks. But which ones in particular? And then, Jim, you know, we would really love to hear, since you're our man in Washington, what your thoughts are. But which comments in particular refer to? Well, we were
0: discussing whether this was fake news or whether this was real. And and let's anticipate that it's for the moment, at least, that it is real since it's consistent with the evolving narrative but it was the idea that if you don't comply with the diktat that you're going to be um that there's going to be tracing contact tracing that there's going to be isolation case forced isolation there's going to be forced mandatory vaccination with any new vaccine that comes along and is approved that that you are really essentially not going to be allowed to function in society
1: Yes, this is Washington State, the lovely governor of Washington State, who I believe attributed a lot of this activity to not only the National Guard because they're so disciplined, but also the University of Washington, which of course is the Bill Gates cabal. I'm really fascinated with what's happening right now just in the platforms of which you can view this kind of content. I, I've started to migrate over to BitChute. I don't know about either of you, it is a bit cesspool but YouTube is just, you know, there's so much happening so quickly. There's so much information that's that's being exchanged. The exchange in the Italian parliament yesterday was extraordinary. Again, overuse that superlative. I don't know if either of you saw what happened there, but completely calling for Bill Gates to be arrested as a war criminal, crimes against humanity. That is an unbelievable battle cry, something that you know, Italy certainly has been ground zero in a certain extent in Europe for this COVID, whatever it is. I don't even want to use the p-word anymore—pandemic, plandemic—who knows? I mean, but I'm just mesmerized with the shift in how we're getting information and where we're getting information and how rapid-fire it's hitting us. And as you mentioned, Jim, in the beginning, we while all of this is going on, we're you know we've got. A, a stock market and an economy that's just a roller coaster ride, out of control, up and down constantly, and then blending in the Flynn situation, all wrapped up in an election year. I mean, Jim, what are your thoughts on all
2: of this? One of the problems is that the uh, the Wu flu has been politicized, both as to its response, and I was just, we're way way past treating as a public health matter. And it's being treated as a political dispute, and it's become completely tribalized that interferes with the appropriate public health response. Because now the the blue team will want to keep the economy shut down, so as to damage the red team. And more and more, when it comes to the the draconian sanctions, it will be the blue team's press element will be leading the fight for these compulsory measures. They will be writing editorials saying, of course, someone's children should be taken away. Of course, vaccine passports should be required. You know, that, that's what's going to be really scary is to see the extent to which the normal voices for civil liberties will be not only gone, but on the other side. And it will come to the groups like the, the Tea Party Patriots and Open America and the occasional federal judge, sometimes state judges. There are 12 federal judges now that have issued orders against governors primarily to open up churches, because pretty much all of the blue state governors have been discriminating against houses of worship. In a very draconian sense, you can you can buy booze, you can get an abortion, but you can't go to church and thankfully, there's at least a handful of federal judges now willing to to issue injunctions against that kind of conduct.
1: It just leaves me speechless that it seems to have ramped up in in a certain sense it's like it's ramped up like almost seemingly overnight and in another sense, we've all seen this coming right Andy we've watched for five years as the noose has tightened on health freedom. And now health freedom is, I think, rapidly becoming a significant plank in the Republican platform. It's certainly going to affect vaccine policy, but it feels like it's igniting the awakening of the consciousness of America with regards to what really is possible here.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's an extraordinary important time in world history, in American history. People died so that Americans might have freedom. That was conditional. They might have freedom, but it was conditional upon the Americans valuing that freedom and preserving that freedom, not just against the original British tyranny, but against continuing tyranny, the resurgence of tyranny. It will always resurge, special interests will always, if you do not. Keep the lid on it. The price of democracy is constant vigilance. People make that point very strongly, and yet we are reaching a this defining moment. It really is. You know, it's the dichotomy is extraordinary. On the one hand, you've got people who are prepared to go along with the system at any price because they appear to have bought into the narrative that it is this is a terrifying pandemic, or have subscribed, as Jim has alluded to, to the notion that the way to bring Trump down is to crush the economy Mm -hmm. and to rebuild from that point forward with a new administration. And it reminds me a bit, there was a moment in history, and forgive me if I get it wrong, Jim will remember this as well, part of my growing up, when the Soviet Empire was collapsing, the Soviet Union was collapsing, and there was so it was fragmenting, Poland was breaking away, other countries breaking away. Gorbachev realized this, and piece by piece, and he he facilitated it with perestroika, with glasnost. He he realized that it was inevitable. Communism had failed, and what happened was that there was a counter-coup. You'll remember there was a counter-coup by the Politburo. And they had surrounded the Kremlin with a convoy of tanks. Boris Yeltsin, in the middle of the night, there was this scene, this extraordinary scene, where Boris Yeltsin, carrying a Russian flag, climbs on to the tank of the commander of this of this um, tank regiment that surrounded the Kremlin. And the captain, the commander at that time, had... Two choices, and one of the, those choices would define really in many ways the future of the world. He could either put a bullet in Yeltsin's brain and kill him right there, or he could hand it over to him. He could not do that. He could hand over his tank, hand, hand over his regiment, hand over the Kremlin, hand over the Politburo, hand over the entire Soviet empire to Boris Yeltsin. History was in his hands in that moment. And of course, we know the choice he made. He handed it over to Yeltsin. And so the wall fell and it was the end of the Soviet Empire. And that was extraordinary. I, I feel, I sense that we are coming close to just such a moment where we have to make a very, very important decision as collectively and as as individuals about which way we go forward in this because it's going to be very difficult to turn back, particularly if the side of the equation that is peopled by Bill Gates and by Fauci and by the apparatchik prevail and that this becomes the norm, that mandatory vaccination... COVID originally, and then for every vaccine that is on the recommended schedule and all those to come, or there is destruction of the family unit, children taken away, people imprisoned, incarcerated, unable to function in society, that we really do become part of what George Orwell anticipated. So it is a a very, very interesting time. And it's, it's a matter of impressing upon people just how significant this is.
2: The tool the deep state is leveraging here is fear. And they're doing it very powerfully. And it's if you if you go out, you'll die. If you open up, the country will die. Uh, and I, I just walking to work today. Uh, someone approaching me w- walked across the street so as not to come within 20 feet of me. And people are terrified. And that's the meme that the state and the blue state media are peddling is this intense, palpable sense of fear that fear will tempt people into supporting draconian measures in order to to make their fear go away. Because that fear, fear of dying is a, is a terribly, terribly scary thing. I'm
1: struck by what we're seeing, at least in the South, where I am. In just walking into a market, I, I think, Jim, we sort of can see now red team, blue team, because the blue team is completely covered, you know, masked, gloves, um, and terrified. And the red team are just walking around normally. And it's almost as if we now have garb and fashion as a political statement for people to identify themselves. And I'm even starting to notice a pattern on various political shows and in the media where blue team in the gentleman sector tend to wear blue neckties and red team tend to wear red neckties. And it's, it's just, uh, it seems like, like you said, it's like a, it's like a colors war. I feel like I'm at summer camp and, and of course the stakes are infinitely higher, but we've got this ridiculous condition that is just the country has becoming obsessed with. And it, it occurred to me, you know, we've often said in health freedom, if your vaccines work, why are you afraid if I'm not vaccinated? Well, it's kind of the same things with same thing with masks, right? If your masks work, why are you afraid of me? And if they don't work, then why are you wearing them?
0: Yes. Jim, thoughts? <laughs> Brown uh, I, do, I will share one very interesting observation. There was a, a paper published today on just going back to the biology of, of Im, Im, immunity and looking at the ability of um, exposure to the coronavirus COVID-19 to produce long-term immunity, not in terms of antibodies, but in terms of cellular immunity, the ability of T cells, T lymphocytes to kill virally infected cells. And that was very encouraging because it did show that if you've been exposed to the ability of your T cells to respond to subsequent challenge was good and that you would be protected because it's, it's not just antibodies neutralizing the virus, it's the ability of the cellular immune system to clear the virus once you're infected. What was really interesting is that even people who had not been exposed to COVID-19, to the current coronavirus, were immune. Their T cells were reactive and conferred protection They presume by virtue of exposure historically to other coronaviruses, and this is a feature of T-cell responses as they're broader. Antibody responses are very, very specific, uh, which is one of the reasons why you have to keep producing a new flu vaccine every year because the the proteins on its surface mutate, but not so for the cellular immune system, which is much broader and confers protection against a broader range of coronaviruses facing a specific exposure. And and that was, uh, to me, that was a very encouraging thing, but also reinforced this notion that a lot of us are protected from this current infection by historical exposure to coronaviruses that have given us this broad broad panoply of immunity. Again, arguing very strongly for the role of natural herd immunity in the protection of the species from this kind of infection? And why we should encourage natural herd immunity rather than trying to suppress it?
2: Well, the the most powerful evidence in support of uh, your hypothesis, Andy, is the fact that we are still here as a species. Uh, We we would have been wiped out long ago by the bacteria and the viruses if we didn't have an immune system designed by God and Darwin. To, to provide us this amazing sense of protection. But yet along in the last hundred years, we just decided to meddle, meddle with that carelessly without any thought at all to destroying the benefit of millions and millions of years of, of evolution. The simplicity of your hypothesis is just this, that if we've had the common cold, we are, we're developing protection against this coronavirus. But the vaccines, because they are looking for one for RSV as well, in the common cold, the vaccines would wipe out that feature of the immune system, and one of the one of the leading candidate vaccines, an RNA vaccine, will produce antibodies but no cellular immunity, so we'll be dependent on a vaccine and vaccine boosters every six weeks.
0: Yes, by virtue of its specificity, render us more susceptible, and we saw this with flu vaccine that the flu vaccines did just this; they produced antibodies but antibodies were not a measure of the breadth of the immunity that was needed to stop you getting infected so that when you had had a flu vaccine when it came to the next year's exposure you were more susceptible than the people who'd never had the vaccine and so on and so forth and not only more susceptible to getting infected but more susceptible to severe infection because you were removing that broad T cell component to the ability to control these viral infections and get rid of them. So you had this progressive, systematic destruction of natural herd immunity that was making people more and more and more vulnerable. And we even saw this as a sort of cross-species effect where in that uh, Department of Defense study, they found that people who had had the influenza vaccine were more susceptible to developing coronavirus infection. So we really don't know what we're doing. We are messing with nature in a way that is leading us into a very, very dark place. uh, And we do not understand what we're doing. I I would be fascinated. You see, there was a perfect opportunity in Italy, for example, to ask the question, we are giving uh, Italian elderly people a supercharged influenza vaccine, I believe it was four elements, including H1N1 in this vaccine. Are these people more or less susceptible to disease and from from mortality to COVID infection in this environment? There was a chance to do that study, even retrospectively. And has it been done? Will it ever be done? No, because they simply do not wish to know the answer.
1: So while all of this is happening and, and what you just explained is basically a seventh grade level biology lesson. You didn't use super big fancy words that we couldn't understand. It's a really basic understanding of immunology. Why are media and politicians so unwilling? That is where I think conspiracy theories come in, because that's very easy to understand what you just explained. And and would, would you also confirm, Andy, for me that combined with all of this, viruses mutate rapidly, right? We've, we've, I've heard some headlines that there are already 39 strains out and about. I mean, how can you test this notion of absolution that, oh, yes, we're going to test and you either have it or you don't? And it just it feels like rhetoric that is designed to push the fear button more than to actually solve public health.
0: Yes, it is. I mean, yes, viruses mutate very rapidly, which is part of the evolutionary advantage you know that they can change and they can elude immunity to the extent that they can continue to reproduce and spread within populations and the key is uh, there may be mutations in many elements of the of the virus you know what are called hyper variable elements of the viral genome the key is if they change in their what are called immunodominant epitopes the ones to which the body generates an immune response to help clear or control the virus. Those are the key ones, and, and, and that's where you are worried, you are concerned about mutations occurring because then it will tend to elude whatever you put in place to protect against it like a, like a vaccine. So it may well be that for these viruses, vaccines are not the answer, and many people are saying that by the time a working vaccine comes along, I won't say safe, but what a working, whatever that means, vaccine comes along, the agent will have moved beyond our ability to control it with that vaccine. What it does is give us, it, it, it puts in place the industrial machinery to make these vaccines more quickly next time, which is equally worrying. So... Sorry, duels is just come in. I completely forgot my say. duels. <laughs> <laughs> the,
1: the, the important
0: duels, well, her dog, anyway. So, um, Wait, are but we yes,
1: are. yes, we are <laughs>
0: <laughs> welcome
1: to the podcast.
0: Welcome to the podcast. Duels. That's uh, all. No, 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 that's fine. Um, say hello but, to all those people out there. Duels, duels uh, is um, duels was the uh director of photography on Vax 2 and has been the senior editor. On the current movie, Nineteen Eighty Six, the Act. So, Duels, say hello to people. Oh, hello, you guys! It's an honor.
1: <laughs> I think I think we should start calling you the Essential Duels yes. because you you are so essential. Um, uh-huh. What I would really like to pick up on is the 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 level of extreme irresponsibility that we're seeing then, based on what you just explained, Andy, of the blue team politicians to be. Calling for communities and cities and states to be closed until there's a vaccine, how could it be ir- more irresponsible to even make such a statement?
0: I think it's counterintuitive if you adopt the position that natural herd immunity is the best protection because you are limiting the ability of the virus to spread amongst those people who deal with it best, the young the young. Um, the one caveat to that is the potential that Kawasaki disease, which is this inflammatory vasculitis, a blood vessel inflammation, is being seen as a consequence, we are told, a possible consequence of the vaccine. So that's the only caveat. There's a lot of work to be done on that at the moment. It's it's a long way from being proven, but I just flag that as something to watch out for. Having said that, young people deal with the infection appear to deal with it extremely well. So It's certainly counterintuitive from that perspective. I think there are likely to be and have been shown to be some very viable alternatives in terms of either supplements like vitamin C, vitamin D, or drugs that are available on the market have been available for for many, many years for other indications which have a known and well-studied safety profile, like hydroxychloroquine, which may well be beneficial, and that, I think, is likely to be a much more productive approach. I also think, from listening to the doctors, the many, many doctors who've now spoken out about this, is that we treated this disease in the wrong way in the intensive care unit from the very beginning, that this was Mm -hmm. not pneumonia. This was actually an oxygen, oxygen dissociation function from hemoglobin, and that was best treated perhaps with hyperbaric oxygen rather than forcing air into the lungs and causing the risk of pulmonary fibrosis, lung damage, scarring as a consequence, which may have enhanced morbidity and mortality from the infection. And many, I've listened to them with great interest. These are good clinicians saying, we are treating this disease in the wrong way. We have misunderstood this. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the mortality, at least a substantial part of it, might come down to the fact that we have not, we've been following protocols and those protocols have been misguided. And you need to trust the clinicians at the bedside, those at the, you know, in the front line, who really see this kind of thing and understand it, who get the right kind of therapy. So I think there, there there's much to have learned from this, and I don't think we are learning it very effectively, particularly because Jim said people have been terrified into a state of mind which does not lead to rational thought.
1: Is there any clinical? rationale for why Medicare would be paying out settlements for death. So $13,000 for every death certificate that says COVID, $39,000 for every death certificate that says COVID with a ventilator. What would be the reason that our Medicare system would be offering that? Is there a clinical reason? I mean, is there... Is there an enhanced expense associated with COVID that would justify that kind of payout? And does it not, you know, incentivize in a really dark notion these health centers to label death certificates with these
2: notations
1: for a monetary payout? You would think that well, would not be a motivator, well, this, but.
2: Yeah, this practice actually, Lori, is. Ancient. It's called upcoding. Been going on as long as there has been a Medicare and a Medicaid program. That's that's this fee-for-service. And and, and a lot of these show up in the false claims cases because doctors and nurses will turn in hospitals for doing this. So you come in with a splinter uh, to the emergency room, and they code it as pneumonia, and build a government appropriately. No one, nobody would ever catch that because there was there was never electronic medical records. Uh, You know, you never, you, you couldn't really audit that. You just see it was billed as pneumonia, even though it not really in point of fact it was a splinter or a common cold or the flu, and they gave you gave you an aspirin and said go home. So now that we're seeing exactly the same thing with Wu flu, that you come in with the flu or a bad cold or a, a pneumonia that's bacterial or whatever, and they code it as Wu flu because the fee for service for Wu flu, you know, Medicare pays a much higher amount for that diagnosis, that CPT code. ICD-9 code, because it's assumed that, you know, when they, they, they did these calculations, that to care for a Wu-Flu patient requires a whole lot of PPE and more sophisticated medical care than does the ordinary pneumonia-based, uh, you know, severe respiratory disease. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's why there's an incentive to always code your, your records with the most expensive thing you can bill for. That's not a new problem, but it's more exacerbated by Wu-Flu, they can justify it by saying, well, it's an emergency, it's a crisis. We didn't have the testing equipment. And for a while, I think it was even, if not still, it was CDC guidance to where if you had these symptoms, you presumed Wu-Flu. Mm. So the hospitals were within, well within their rights to say, oh, well, they, they said we can presume Wu-Flu. We'll put that down as a CPT code.
0: Mm-hmm. The problem for me is that, OK, so you, let's say you ventilate. But there's a difference in the rate at which they'll reimburse for ventilation for non-Wu-Flu and Wu-Flu. But the ventilation is the same. The protocol would be the same, The if it were pneumonia, for example, or whatever it were, respiratory failure. And yet one is worth twice as much as the other. That doesn't make any sense, you know, you're because you're still going through the same technical process. The other thing, of course, there must be pressure on hospitals. So many of them are empty and they're losing money to actually bend the rules in a way that recodes these or upcodes them, as Jim said um to try and make up the <laughs> the losses so it's um yeah it's That's
1: right all those elective surgeries have been put on hold so they've got to make up for the revenue somehow and we we know that healthcare workers are being furloughed doctors and nurses hospitals are empty in a lot of cities i'm i'm curious to hear how each of you would predict what the implications might here be here for the health freedom movement I want to invite our listeners to go over to Patreon to hear the rest of the discussion. If you like what you're hearing here on the Andy Wakefield podcast, we'd love to have you join us. It's $5 a month, gives you premium access. Uh, We will be putting some of our podcasts behind that paywall so that we can ensure the protection of our content we've had. I believe, Andy, they stalled our iTunes account at episode 13. We've had multiple listeners contact us and say, we can't get past episode 13. And I think well, there I'm may
2: on, be. Uh, on uh, on iHeart, um, I just looked and we're at 21 on iHeart. Oh, that's 21. good.
1: That's good. So they've kept us up to date. I believe Stitcher stalled us at 13 at one point. For our listeners, we, we are always going to be on SoundCloud. We have a paying account on SoundCloud. As long as they'll let us continue to pay our bill and hitch our ride, we will always be here and you should be able to keep up with us weekly, except for those uh, episodes that we may move over to Patreon.com, Andy Wakefield Podcast. And we'll probably, we'll probably start making that move more aggressively after the film comes out uh, right around the middle of June, I think, Andy, is second week of June-ish is what we're looking at.
0: It's kind of ish. It may be, may, may be sooner. I, I think it's the timing is perfect. I don't want to wait too long. People have stayed at home. They watched everything there is on Netflix to watch, and they're ready for something <laughs> that really makes sense to them. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be ready to go. There, their, so. con-
1: their, their content coffers are empty, so <laughs> perfect time. Uh, so uh, we hope you'll join us over at Patreon.com, and thank you all so much for listening today. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a 7th Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986theact. And soon on SPHERE.